This episode contains strong themes that some listeners may find distressing. The historical events in this show touch on the subjects of chronic illness, death, suicide, homophobia, sexual acts, drug use, and some explicit language. The 1980s were important and trying times for Aotearoa. Many look back to this time for the fashion and the music, but it was also a period of bold protest and activism, political reform, economic disasters, and more. You may have learned about some of these events in school. The Springboks Tour, the Rainbow Warrior, Māori Language Act of 1987, all important parts of our history that people should know and reflect on. In this series, you'll learn something that isn't taught in schools, but it should be. A story that should sit alongside all of our most famous events in history, involving a group of brave people that Aotearoa should be immensely proud of. Perhaps it's a testament to how well they did that most don't know their names, but it's time to change that. This is Our Forgotten Epidemic, a six-part story about Aotearoa New Zealand's response to HIV and AIDS, and some of the many brave individuals who changed the course of history. I'm your host, Dr Jason Myers, and I've been honoured to have been a part of the HIV response in Aotearoa for nearly two decades. This is part six. Our future is our past. In June 1981, reports of a new mystery illness started to surface. It was spreading rapidly among criminalised and marginalised communities. Previously healthy people were getting sick and dying and no one knew why. This was the beginning of the HIV and AIDS pandemic. Out of these origins, a bundle of community movements and organisations were started by and for those people who are most affected by the virus, some of whom I've had the privilege to tell you about in this series. All of these community organisations and movements, including those you haven't been introduced to in this series, are equally responsible for what could now be considered one of the biggest public health success stories in New Zealand's history. As you've learnt over the course of this series, Aotearoa has a lot to be proud of. We've come a long way since the early 80s, but the work isn't over just yet. The treatment developments you heard about in the previous episode marked the beginning of a new era in HIV prevention, treatment and activism. Since 1996, there have been many more conferences, many more people standing up for their rights and many more challenges faced. One such development has been the role that treatment plays in prevention. This is the basis behind the U Equals U campaign, spearheaded by American HIV activist Bruce Richman. Yep, yet another Bruce. While Bruce wasn't directly involved in Aotearoa's HIV response, his contribution globally has undoubtedly impacted people living with HIV here. Bruce was diagnosed with HIV in 2003 and actually spent some time here in Aotearoa as he came to terms with things, so he has a connection to this country. Nine years later, in 2012, Bruce's doctor told him something which changed his life. 
his HIV viral load was undetectable, which meant he could not pass on HIV to his sexual partners. My old ways of thinking were that I could transmit HIV no matter what. I was always going to be able to pass this on. There was always going to be a risk. And that's the way I was thinking, that my body could potentially be dangerous to someone. What multiple studies have shown is that modern antiretroviral medications stop the virus from replicating. Over time, this reduces the amount of HIV in the body to what's called an undetectable viral load. Bruce Richmond's HIV had been undetectable for years by the time he visited his doctor in 2012. He knew that in terms of his health, the virus was under control, and that as long as he remained on treatment, it would continue to be so. But what his doctor told him that day, that he was no longer in danger of passing on HIV through sexual contact, was completely new information to him. I didn't actually believe it at first. It took me a little while. I mean, I trusted him 100%, but it takes a while to sink in because after living with HIV and feeling like I was toxic and, and isolating myself because I was so afraid of transmitting HIV to someone that I would love, to change that frame took some time. For nearly a decade, Bruce had been living with the belief his own body was dangerous to anyone he dared be intimate with. Now, he was being told that he could experience sex without the fear of passing on HIV. I mean, it's changed everything for me. And the the things that matter, love, relationships, connection, it's, it's changed everything. I mean, when I was diagnosed, I was so afraid of passing HIV on to to somebody that I would love that I I didn't love. And I isolated myself. I was afraid of dating and now knowing that I can't transmit HIV. And then I never did since the time that I've been detectable for for years is, 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 is extraordinary to me. It means that I can be intimate without HIV being there. I can be intimate without that fear, which was always present in these intimate moments of my life without fear. I can, I can conceive a child now, you know, without expensive sperm washing or an alternative insemination. It's incredible. It just, it really, I don't like the word normal, but it, it normalizes things for me. However, something about this experience bothered him. He now knew firsthand how liberating this knowledge had been. Why was the health sector not singing it from the rooftops? Where were the public campaigns giving this same reassurance, these same freedoms, to all the other people living with HIV? And I kept uh, gathering research and talking to folks, and one person said to me, a journalist from, from the UK, he said, this is the big secret in the field. And having him confirm that at sort of the highest levels this was being talked about and not shared, that galvanized me. And shortly after that, I met with the head of a clinic in, in Washington, D.C., and I was just gathering data. And the head of the clinic said to me, I agree 100% with you equals you, but we don't tell our patients that because there may be a rise of STIs if they stop using condoms. And they might not understand that to stay undetectable requires them staying on their medication. And once I realized this is commonly accepted practice to basically lie to people with HIV and withhold life-changing information about our social, sexual, and reproductive health from us, I couldn't do anything else. I had to do this and I dropped my other work and just, I had to do it. 
Bruce quickly founded an organisation, Prevention Access Campaign, in order to get the message out. They collaborated with other experts and activists to create the undetectable equals untransmittable consensus statement. The statement publicly confirmed that there is no risk of sexual transmission from someone living with HIV on continued treatment with an undetectable viral load. It's since been endorsed by over 1,000 organisations worldwide and could be considered one of the most important breakthroughs for people living with HIV in recent times. In the years since Bruce has been promoting this message, he's seen firsthand the impact it's had on people's lives. But there's one moment in particular that stands out to him. In Canada, we had an experience with a, a woman stood up after she learned U equals U and told us, everyone in the room, that she'd been with her husband for 25 years and undetectable most of that time and was ter- has always been terrified of passing on HIV to her husband, even though they use condoms, condoms break. She didn't have a moment of intimacy with him without fear of, of harming him, she said. And she kept saying, is this true? Is this true? And she was crying and I was crying. Everyone was crying. And she texted her husband, was furiously texting him, you know, during the conference. And then she had left early to go be with her husband. And I'm sure they had a wonderful time. I think about that a lot. That's it drives me to think that for 25 years, this couple couldn't feel really close to each other. They didn't have intimacy for 25 years and now they can. What a magical thing. Alongside U equals U, there have been other important developments in the HIV treatment space in recent years. You may have already heard of one of these, pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP. PrEP is the use of medication that prevents the user from acquiring HIV. In 2018, after a concerted effort led by the New Zealand AIDS Foundation and others, Aotearoa became one of the first countries in the world to publicly fund PrEP. While gaps in access and concerns around equity of outcomes persist, there is no questioning that PrEP has played a significant role in reducing HIV infections in recent years. Another essential development in Aotearoa came in 2017, when treatment began to be funded from the day someone is diagnosed. Prior to this, people living with HIV had to wait until their immune system was compromised before accessing treatment. We know that early treatment optimises the long-term health outcomes of people living with HIV, so this funding decision was a huge win. For most people living with HIV in Aotearoa today, it has become a treatable, manageable condition, similar to living with many other chronic health issues. However, it's a sad reality that even with medical breakthroughs, social movements and advances in scientific understanding, people living with HIV are still discriminated against. In fact, many report that the most harmful thing about living with the virus today has little to do with their physical health. Jane Brunning, who you'll remember from previous episodes as living with HIV, has been the national coordinator at Positive Women Inc. since 2004. Through her lived experience and work supporting women and girls, 
She knows all about the stigma and discrimination faced by people living with HIV. I think the, the biggest issues in regards to HIV would be stigma and discrimination. I'm not saying that everybody should speak out publicly. <laughs> what I do believe strongly is that if people shouldn't be afraid to have to speak out. And I think that is definitely there with HIV. People are afraid. I mean, it's, it's different to cancer, right? I mean, if you had cancer and, and you went to work and you told your work colleagues that you had cancer, there would probably be a lot of empathy and support. If you go to work and tell people that you've got HIV, there would probably be some nervousness, some apprehension, some, you know, quizzical questions, possible discrimination, judgments. Again, increases to that isolation, so people are afraid to tell. The results of a May 2021 poll conducted by Positive Women Inc., the New Zealand AIDS Foundation and ConsumerLink make for some pretty challenging reading. 37% of people surveyed responded that they would not feel comfortable having a flatmate who was living with HIV. 74% would not feel comfortable having a sexual relationship with someone who was living with HIV. And 39% said they wouldn't be comfortable letting their child play with another child who was living with HIV. There's still a huge gap in society's understanding, so there's still work for us to do. We have all the facts today. There is no grey area. HIV does not discriminate. It is a virus, and it behaves like a virus. Yes, it largely affects certain populations because of the way it's transmitted, but it is not an indicator of morality or fate. To those of you listening right now, perhaps you could take this time to ask yourself, honestly, how would I feel to be in a relationship with, to be a flatmate of, or have my child play with, someone living with HIV. The fear of these situations comes from a lack of knowledge and understanding. And that's okay if you've never had a chance to learn. But now you've heard this podcast, you've learned a lot. You know that undetectable equals untransmittable. That the virus can't be transmitted by sharing cups or living spaces. That people living with HIV have been unnecessarily ostracised and made to feel dangerous, guilty and ashamed since the beginning of this epidemic. Now you know these things, you can be a part of making the world a better place for those living with and affected by HIV. For me, the ideal is that one day, and I think that day will come, is that a person living with HIV can, can talk about it and can tell anybody and there will be no discriminatory or stigmatizing reactions to it, that it should just be something you can disclose if you want to with no fear of any repercussions. Overall, Aotearoa has done overwhelmingly well in the response to the epidemic. There is still a lot of mahi to do, but as a country, we have put legal protections in place for people living with HIV, LGBTQI plus people, sex workers and people who inject drugs. We've funded access to treatment, care and prevention tools. And promisingly, our nation currently has a government demonstrating leadership and with an intent to launch the first HIV action plan the country has seen since 2003. These developments are in part thanks to the brave people you've heard from in this series. 
and so many more whose voices you haven't yet heard, who have worked tirelessly to effect change. They stood up to protect the generations that would come after, when their actions meant that they could face ostracism and discrimination, and when they knew that the change they were fighting for would, for many, come too late to save their own lives. And these developments are also thanks to everyone who has picked up the torch since those early days and has kept pushing for change, educating and supporting thousands, standing on the shoulders of giants and carrying their legacies through the decades into the future. We asked some of those people what they think were some of the key factors that resulted in the effectiveness of our response. Here's Warren Lindbergh, a former director of the NZAF. We built real relationships, and I think if you read Peter Davis's book, Intimate Details and Vital Statistics, his conclusion is that that relationship building was fundamental to our success. As you'll remember, Warren became the director when the organisation was just a year old, in 1986, and stayed in the role for the next 12 years through what could probably be seen as some of the most challenging periods of time in the organisation's history. When the first case of AIDS arrived in New Zealand, homosexuality and prostitution were still illegal. The gay community, the sex workers and people who injected drugs were people who lived on the fringes of society, who kept their identities secret out of fear of retribution and ostracisation. But the threat of the virus meant that these previously disparate groups were forced to work together on an issue that would, left unchecked, affect us all. Back to Warren. The gay community started trusting the health sector. The health sector started treating us with respect and credibility. The media treated us with credibility and respect the public began to treat us as credible sources of information and with respect. So that getting decriminalisation of homosexual acts in the end was, well, it wasn't easy. It had gone through, you know, all sorts of agony up, up until that point. By now, you know Michael Stevens quite well. He has been living with HIV since 1988. He's also a former board member of the NZAF. Here's why he believes we were not only successful, but very lucky. We were a few years later than, say, the States or the UK or Australia when it became known here. And it was the long Labour government and you had people in power who were progressive and they were ready to listen to advice around how to work with the population most at risk of MSM. Um, and that stayed the same whether it was Labour or National in power. There was a really clear sense from the Ministry of Health and from government in general, whatever the party in power was, that the AIDS Foundation was actually doing a good job. They knew what they were doing and they should be left alone to do it. Gay liberation groups had been fighting for their rights for many years prior to the 80s. However, it's undeniable that the looming health crisis quickly became a catalyst for change on a large scale. Successful campaigns like the homosexual law reform, led by Fran Wilde in 1986, 
and supported by multiple groups, made it easier to reach those communities most at risk of the virus. The Needle Exchange Programme, instigated by the IV League, supported by the New Zealand AIDS Foundation and taken on by Dr Richard Meech, was instrumental in ensuring that people who inject drugs have access to clean needles. Aotearoa today has one of the lowest rates of HIV transmission among injecting drug users in the world. If you've listened to this series in its entirety, Dr Royalis Pegler will be by now a man who needs no introduction. The first infectious disease physician to work with HIV and AIDS in Auckland, and one of the first in the country, Rod has been well loved by his patients and his colleagues for his no-nonsense, empathy-driven approach throughout what must have been some of the hardest years of his career. He's also, as you're about to hear, rather modest about his own contribution. I was part of it, a small part of it. I guess anyone who was a small part of anything would like people to think that it was handled pretty reasonably. And to be honest, I think it was. Um, it was pretty reasonable. Perfect, of course it wasn't perfect. We didn't get a lot of the mess that other people got into. We didn't, I don't know. No, we didn't. We remained friends with the gay community. Okay. Uh, and I think I contributed to that. I think we didn't do too badly. We never had huge rails with the gay community, as they seem to in Australia and these places, other parts of the world. So much anger about it. There was a bit here, I'm sure, and I'm selectively forgetting, which I'm entitled to do now. <laughs> as these different groups worked together, they came to realise that even though they may have stood for different things and had different identities, they all had something in common. Here's Dr Richard Meech, who you'll remember from previous episodes, sharing his thoughts on our response. And it took all of these people that we've been talking about working together with a common goal. I was aware that we were marching to a different drum beat right from the early days. The Aussies first introduced national guidelines to a needle and syringe exchange. We were about a month or two behind them, but ours was different from what their response was. And we were right at the apex of international responses. I was interviewed by the New York Times as to why can a little wee Timpok country down there, which doesn't have much of a problem with HIV, do things that the United States can't do. I like to see the reason. That reason has actually been able to dominate over fear whereas internationally, fear has dominated over reason. And at its barest essential, I think that that's what I would feel proudest of and took a lot of work to get there, but, but we did. The virus recognises our humanity. It's only when we recognise our humanity in each other, that you can actually produce the societal response that you're actually seeking.
1983, Bruce Burnett returned to New Zealand after living in San Francisco. Although Bruce was already ill with the early stages of AIDS when he returned, he, along with other activists, allies and community members, decided to do something about AIDS in Aotearoa. For Bruce Burnett, this would be a battle that would consume every waking moment of the last year of his life. Thanks to the legacies of Bruce and all the other pioneers who worked alongside him, the state of the epidemic in Aotearoa today is completely different to how it could have been. AIDS diagnoses and deaths remain thankfully incredibly low. Most people living with HIV now, with the aid of medication, will go on to lead long and healthy lives, comparable to the general population. So, in 2022, the New Zealand AIDS Foundation changed its name to Burnett Foundation Aotearoa to recognise and honour the work that Bruce Burnett and the people who worked alongside him did. It was also a way to reflect the changing landscape of the HIV response, as caring for those affected by AIDS is no longer at the forefront of the work that the Foundation does, simply because there now aren't as many people living with AIDS in New Zealand. As part of the Burnett Foundation Aotearoa rebrand and this podcast, those that knew Bruce were asked what they think of his legacy and contribution to the HIV and AIDS response in Aotearoa. You'll remember Keith Robinson, Bruce's former partner, from part two. Keith acquired HIV six years after Bruce passed away from AIDS-related complications. He believes Bruce's actions directly saved his life, along with the lives of many. I mean, I'm alive now because somebody started something. Somebody started it. And when I required it, everything was in place. You know, although there was no drugs, the discussion had been done. The government had reacted. The hospitals were reacting. And the social fibre in New Zealand had recognised what's going on. And yes, all that education did get out there. And so just the countless people that did not die. I mean, that's pretty good beginning. Just because somebody felt like it was important to come home to New Zealand, he could have, he could have stayed in San Francisco, which he loved. But he came home because he knew that nobody here was alerted and it was important. So all the lives are not taken or, or the lives extended. That's his legacy. I won't ever forget. Here's Kate Leslie, who became the first chair of NZAF following Bruce's death on his immeasurable contribution. And I think by his example, a whole range of people from every walk of life and occupation were encouraged, driven some to, to make a contribution. And that was largely down to him. 
um, <laughs> some people I'm sure were surprised that uh, they ended up uh, doing this. This was right out of their comfort zone. But he was this brave person saying, uh, come on, you all need to be part of this. We will need a whole lot of people to help. We need people to educate. You all need to do a piece here to help. Don't leave it to the medical profession. Don't leave it to a few. We need to do this. The gay community needs to do this. We need to engage other people and tell them it's safe to be involved. And he was quite brilliant at doing that. And the Aid Support Network and eventually the Foundation are testimony to that. You know, here was someone who gave their all uh, to the end of their life to fight to further the cause and to work for the lifestyle, but but for public health, for safety, like this is safe sex, D do these behaviours, don't do do these, change, change your ways, stay alive. Bill Logan was also there at the beginning as one of the founding members of the NZAF and knew Bruce personally. I guess that um, the role of Bruce Burnett is the thing which is difficult to properly transmit and important to. He was an extraordinary guy, certainly an inspirational sort of character. I think that his specialness was an ability to both show the urgency of AIDS as something which was of extreme existential importance to the people he loved, the gay community, extreme existential importance, but at the same time, this existential threat could be lived with, could be accommodated, and it would be okay. And that's a very difficult contradiction to live with. And, and he could do that. He could project both sides of that contradiction. The not okayness and the okayness at the same time. And that, that, that took something special. If we had ever had any doubts about choosing to use Bruce's name to take us into the future, these were quickly put to rest when we spoke to his friends in whānau. You'll remember Robin Mihaire, Bruce's sister, from the second episode. She was consulted for both this podcast and the new name. She had this to say about how she wishes Bruce to be remembered. She remembered for all this, for his courage, for his dedication, all the hard work he put on, and his ability to see the job through. He just persevered, and, you know. I think he should have got a medal. <laughs> you know, and you think, what could have happened if he hadn't? A, a lot of lives would have been lost, I think. He did a wonderful thing. Here's Keith again to talk about his response to the new name. Because the focus now is different, because of people just not dying every week, and that we can now manage it, that there has to be a new way to look at it, and perhaps taking the threatening words out will help some people with the stigma. 
know you're not going to the New Zealand AIDS Foundation, you're going to the Burnett Foundation. When they contacted me from the foundation to tell me that this was a possibility, I actually went to the tears quite quickly because it's something that I felt was absolutely the right thing to do. And subconsciously, I think I've been pushing for this the whole time. For something. Just acknowledgement of one man's hard work. Bruce is never far from the thoughts of Keith, Robin, and many other people across this motu, including those whose voices you've heard in this series. He dedicated the last years of his life to embody the principles that Burnett Foundation Aotearoa still stands for, nearly 40 years later. You're about to hear from Ian Kaikewetting, who has worked for and with the NZAF, now Burnett Foundation Aotearoa, since 1992. Ian has been a key part of the team responsible for the rebrand process. Bruce Burnett, a significant part of our whakapapa in the AIDS Foundation, but in Aotearoa and internationally. So it's, a, uh, it's the, from my perspective, the perfect identity to move forward with. Honouring our past while moving forward, I think, is, is, is part of kopapa is a kopapa Māori approach. Honour our past while we go forward. That's why I'm feeling really excited, because although uh, we are using uh, Pākehā kupu, uh, Pākehā words, and even a Pākehā man, uh, to move forward, the manner in how we do it is deeply uh, entrenched in, in, in Māori tikanga. So I'm really, yeah, really excited about that. By taking on Bruce's name, Burnett Foundation Aotearoa acknowledges the powerful legacy of the work done by Bruce and many others, work that they continue to do today. This name is a reminder to embody the courage and passion of those who came before us as Burnett Foundation Aotearoa strives to support people living with and affected by HIV, end transmission, and meet the opportunities and challenges that exist for our communities today and in the future. It calls us to stand together, resilient and determined, as we chart our course forward carrying out the work that is yet to be done, all while honouring and acknowledging the spirit of the man who was there at the beginning and who guides us still. Here's Ian, summing up with a whakatauki that guides our work. I walk backwards into the future with my eyes fixed on my past. We are so grateful that it has largely been those who lived through the early days of HIV and AIDS in Aotearoa who have told this story, and that of course includes some who are no longer with us. It was so important to us to not only capture these stories, but then find a way to bring them to life. We felt this ourselves, and then when we had early life members come to us and say, hey, we're not going to be around forever, and we don't want the story to end with us, we knew we had to act. These calls really were the inspiration for this project and indeed its name. 
The people you have heard gave so generously of their time and entrusted us with their stories. Directly to them, I say ngā mihi nui ki Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your involvement, everything you've witnessed and more. We could of course only tell a part of the story. My personal hope is that this is just the beginning and that more opportunities will come to unearth and weave together the rich tapestry that is New Zealand's HIV and AIDS response. And to you, the listener, you've had a window into the history of our forgotten epidemic. Now it's time for you to be a part of its present and its future. Thanks for listening to Our Forgotten Epidemic, a show about Aotearoa New Zealand's response to HIV and AIDS and some of the many brave individuals who changed the course of history. Burnett Foundation Aotearoa is proud to be able to tell part of this important story from the perspectives of some truly remarkable people. And we want to acknowledge there's so much more than we can tell in this short series. Our Forgotten Epidemic was produced by Wavelength Creative in collaboration with Burnett Foundation Aotearoa. Written and researched by Alyssa Partington, Matt Bain and myself, Jason Myers. All music composed by Alex Cox. Many of the voices you've heard in this episode are from a series of interviews conducted by Dr Cheryl Weir in 2019 for the New Zealand AIDS Foundation Oral History Project. Many thanks to Pride NZ for allowing us to use portions of the interviews with Jane Bruning and Kate Leslie. You can listen to these interviews in full, alongside many others, at pridenz.co.nz. Thanks to Keith Robinson, Robin Mihaire and Ian Kaihe-Witting for allowing us to interview them for this project. The interview with Bruce Richman you heard in this episode was conducted for NZAF in 2018 by me, Dr Jason Myers. Special thanks to our test listeners, including staff living with HIV at Burnett Foundation Aotearoa, Gareth Watkins, the Lesbian and Gay Archives of New Zealand and pridenz.co.nz. Special thanks also goes to Peter Davis for his excellent book, Intimate Details and Vital Statistics, AIDS, Sexuality and the Social Order in New Zealand. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Our Forgotten Epidemic, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Dr Jason Myers. Thank you for listening to Our Forgotten Epidemic.